When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Two days before Christmas, 1996, while guards were scrambling, trying to make sense of the bloody scene at the end of Sophie's driveway, Ian Bailey was three miles east. Happily unaware, he says, that this was the last ordinary day of his life. There was a real festive buzz, and it actually felt like it was building up to be a very nice Christmas. Ian was 39 years old. His partner, Jules Thomas, was 47. They lived just outside Skull in a cottage called The Prairie. They started late that morning, They'd been out at the pub the night before. The original plan that day was we were going to go shopping and there was a turkey to be delivered to our friends. At 1.40pm, Ian got a call. It was a journalist at the Cork Examiner newspaper telling him about reports of a body. I said to Jules, well, look, we, there was only one car at that time. I said, well, look, look I'll, I'll drive and you'd better bring your camera with you. This is West Cork, an Audible original series. I'm Sam Bungie. I'm Jennifer Ford, and this is episode five, A Good Suspect. This is the route that I came up um, with. I was driving the car, Jules was in the passenger seat. We travelled along this road and shortly there's a turning to the, to the left. Left just here? Yes. Sophie's house is about a ten minute drive from the Prairie Cottage. Not long after we first met him, Ian suggested he take us out there, retracing the route he and Jules took that day 20 years earlier. After the examiner's phone call, Ian says they stayed in to see if there was any mention of the murder on the news. There was a report, but it was thin on detail. There was a body, a woman. Ian says they might have said French. 
Ian was the first journalist to arrive at the crime scene. He and Jules drove slowly down the laneway, stopping only when they saw guarder cars. They got out. Jules took some photographs and the guards walked towards them. I started to walk down here and about where the telegraph pole is, thereabouts. Uh, I would have met two um, members of Angada Shiakana and inquired of them, was there any statement forthcoming? And I was referred to the press office. I had no knowledge of the location of the body at that time, although it, it, it transpired it was outside and it was uh, near the gate. You can see a five-bar gate there. But so, um, OK, so you see a, a crime scene of, like, ten, ten people down there, people in overalls and stuff. You must have thought this is someone got, someone got murdered. Well, I mean, I had what information, and I've told you what information I had. Right. And but, it, so it was obvious there was something going on here. I had no hard information, no names, no details. Yeah. And how long were you here for? How long did you Ma- A matter for? of uh, minutes. But something about those few minutes didn't sit well with a local guard at the scene, Martin Malone. Earlier that year, an elderly man had fallen from a cliff and Ian had come out to report on it for the local paper. Malone recalled that back on that day, Ian had been relaxed and chatty and wearing casual clothes. But at the crime scene of Sophie's murder, he seemed different. He was wearing a button-down shirt and a long, dark overcoat. The way the guard put it later in a statement was, it appeared to me as if he was acting at the scene of Sophie's murder acting like he was just playing the part of a journalist. Ian makes out like the guards stonewalled him, but they say Ian only asked a few questions and then hurried from the scene, which they thought was strange. Malone also knew about Ian's reputation as a heavy drinker, and there'd been a domestic incident with Jules that year. It all amounted to little more than a hunch, a gut feeling, but it meant that fewer than five hours after the body was discovered, Ian was already on the guards' radar. Ian spent Christmas in a frenzy at the typewriter. He wrote half a dozen stories about the murder over those first few days. The day after Christmas, he came up for air and left the cottage. I'd gone into town uh, on, 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 I think, what, what, early in the morning to get some messages, some briquettes and milk, and then I noticed I was being observed then by two officers. I knew one of them uh, was a member of Ngata Shekana. I didn't know the other. I guessed he was. The two officers both filed statements about this incident. They were in the newsagents, a small corner shop in Skull, when Ian walked in. He drew attention to himself by barging his way to the counter. One of them wrote in a statement that Ian was unbelievably pale. He was unshaven and his hair was in disarray. To me, he was acting in a very unusual manner. Ian was wearing long sleeves, so the guards could only see as far as his wrists. But both guards were struck by what they saw on his hands. Well, I mean, just to uh, scratches on the back of my hands, I did have light um, markings. They weren't blood scratches. They were... Um, I, I, they're hard to describe. The guards followed Ian out of the shop. In their statements, they described this curious scene, watching Ian look back over his shoulder at them as he walked away, and then turn off the main street, only to poke his head back around the corner moments later, as if to check they were still watching. And I went across the road and I noticed they came out and they were, they were looking, they were scrutinising me. And um, I walked down the street uh, to a corner and I turned and I, I looked back up at the street and I saw the two detectives watching me and I had the recollection of an Elvis Costello song in my mind going on, watching the detectives. But it was very strange, it was surreal. 
uh, I knew I had, didn't have anything to do with this, you see. Um, so I had nothing to fear. And yet, you had this strange scrutiny beginning. Two days later, the same guards turned up at Ian and Jules's place to take a better look at the scratches. One officer wrote in a statement that they came right up to both elbows. He asked Ian about them. Ian explained that instead of buying a Christmas tree that year, he decided to cut one down himself. What I was doing was I'd sawn off the top of a Christmas tree, some 20-odd feet in the air, and I was pulling the top of that tree down through the remainder of the tree. So I was tugging it down, mm -hmm. and as I was doing that, I got some light welts, I suppose you might call them. Now, when the guards came out here, I met the guard who noticed the scratches in the yard, and I had my, my sleeves rolled up. Um, you'd have thought that if I had anything to do with this, and I knew that the scratches had come from that, I might have covered them up. I, I made no attempt to, to do that. Now, I know that's not a proof of not having done something, but at the same time... Um, You're not paranoid about your scratches, clearly. No. The guard also noticed a mark on Ian's forehead. Ian explained that was from a bloody battle with a turkey he'd killed for the Christmas table. I got a tiny little hairline a scratch from one of the claws of the turkey, which was um, then blown in, up, out of all proportion into a, wound, a, a deep wound on my face, which was never the case. The guards believed Ian that he had cut down the tree and killed the turkeys. They spoke to a butcher who'd bought one of the turkeys, as well as a local guy who'd passed by the house just as Ian was hauling the freshly cut tree up the road. But they seemed to doubt that this was how Ian had got the scratches they were now so curious about. And they went to some lengths to try to support this. They sent a guard up the same tree to see if he got scratches like Ian's. He didn't. They brought down a forester with some 30 years' experience and asked him if someone could get multiple scratches from this tree. He told them it was highly unlikely. They spoke to people Ian had been out with on the Sunday night, after Ian had cut down the tree and killed the turkeys, but before Sophie was murdered. None of them remembered any scratches. But no one took photos. The guards later drew sketches of the scratches, from memory. One of them would concede that in hindsight, it would have been a good idea to have made a photographic record. Without knowing exactly what kind of injuries we're talking about, deep cuts or light scratches. It's impossible to really judge whether they're likely from a turkey or a tree or a late-night chase through a hillside of briars. That day the guards came to look at the scratches, they also felt out Ian's story. This was still just five days after Sophie's body was discovered. They asked Ian the same questions they were asking everybody. They had a checklist. Questions about Sophie. Did he know the deceased? Ian had a nuanced answer. He didn't know her, but he'd seen her once, from a distance, back when he was doing work on her neighbor's garden about 18 months earlier. But did he know her habits and haunts, anything about her movements from that weekend? He had no idea she was even in town that weekend, didn't know the woman. Where was he on the night of the murder? Sophie was killed sometime between 11pm Sunday night, when she made that last phone call to her husband Daniel, and 10am Monday when her neighbor Shirley drove past the body. Ian had an alibi for this entire period. That Sunday night, he and Jules had gone into Skull to the pub, and after closing time, around midnight, they'd driven home together. The guards asked which route they took home. 
He told them the back way via a place called Hunts Hill, which is a lookout point. When they got home, they had one more drink and went to bed together. And Ian said that's where they both stayed all night. So Ian was with Jules over the entire crucial period until around 10 the next morning, when he slipped out of bed to make her coffee. The guards broadened it out. They wanted to know in detail what Ian had been up to for the entire weekend. Did he go to mass, shops, anything, no matter how trivial? At this point, they were still trying to build a picture of Sophie's final weekend. And soon, they would have another timeline to cross-check Ian's story against. Marie Farrell, the Skull shopkeeper, and her sightings of a man in a long black coat. Ian gave them a rundown. He talked about cutting down the Christmas tree, killing the turkeys, doing some gardening, another pub trip with Jules. We'd cooperated with them fully. We'd filled in questionnaires to do with where movements and times over, over Christmas. Um, I think that they suggested that we might have been inaccurate with one or two points, but it, um, it, again, it, it, it was a very busy, busy period. Ian was inaccurate on one or two points. For example, Ian forgot what he'd done on the Saturday night. Now, to be clear, this is about Saturday night, the night before the night of the murder. So, in a way, who cares, right? Ian told the guards he'd gone home with Jules as usual after a night in the pub in Skull. But actually, he got that wrong. He'd stayed out on the Saturday and ended up sleeping on the sofa of a friend, Mark Murphy. But it was interesting to the guards because of the timeline Marie Farrell had given them. At this point, she'd only told the guards about two sightings of the man in the long black coat. First, she saw the man on Saturday afternoon, standing across the road from her shop when Sophie was inside. Then, early the next morning, when she passed him hitchhiking on the road out of town. Marie passed the man when she was driving up to Cork City, and that spot where she passed him happened to be right by Murphy's house, where the guards had found out Ian had spent the night. The guards were trying to join the dots. They spoke to the Murphys. They learned that a few of them had gone back to their place after the pub and stayed up drinking. When they finally called it a night, Ian had put his coat on and left, said he was going home, but a few minutes later he came back and asked to crash on the sofa. No one was sure exactly when this had been. At first the Murphys said 4am, but there was a guy upstairs who had work the next day and was trying to sleep. He said it was more like 6 Marie Farrell had told the guards that she thought she drove past at about seven. Well, I certainly didn't go and try and hitch. I left the house for a few moments and then went back. Was it your intention to hitch? I don't know. Uh, I think I was, I, I, uh, was I planned to walk? But the point is that I stayed at the Murphy's house. Ian didn't know anything about Marie Farrell's sightings at this point. For him to have deliberately misled the guards about going to the Murphy's house, he'd have to have been worried about things he simply couldn't have even known about. So it isn't so curious for us that he got this wrong. But as is so often the case with Ian, it's what he did about the mistake that's so strange. I went down to the station and I said, I remember now, I, I spent the Saturday night. I just want to let you know that. But Ian didn't go straight to the station to let them know that. First, he went back to the Murphy's house to speak to them. He'd heard the guards had already been there and wanted to find out what they talked about. Well, I just thought, I was wondering because of what was going on, I was making inquiries about um, their inquiries, if, if that makes sense. That second visit, as the Murphys would later describe to the guards, Ian seemed agitated and in a hurry, sort of hopping on his feet while Jules waited in the car. I was just curious as to 
um, the lines of inquiry they were making. What was your worry? Um, well, I think probably at this stage, I was increasingly becoming aware of the fact that, um, uh, and during this would be during January, I guess, of 1997, that I was hearing these stories that I was somehow supposed to be responsible for the crime. And from the tone of the interviews that we'd been getting or and visits from the guards, I was becoming, in, uh, I suppose, increasingly suspicious that they were trying to put me in the frame. Despite checking up on the guards, Ian insists he wasn't too concerned about what they were up to. You don't particularly worry because you have nothing to hide. I mean, I'd probably worry anyway. We have perhaps different constitutions or something, but I, I would, would worry me a lot, I think. But anyway, you weren't worried. Well, no, I mean, I was aware of, uh, and I had uh, sort of growing feelings. I, I can't, uh, wouldn't put it any more than that. Growing feelings that the guards now had a short list of suspects, down to six, and that he was on that list. It was just something that occurred to me. Um, and as it turned out, I, it was probably correct. And at the same time I was reporting on the case, I was finding it very difficult to get information from uh, members of Ngarda Shiakana. Um when I was approaching them, I, I rang, I spoke to Toomey on a number of occasions. And all the time, you're looking to try and come up with an angle that nobody else has come up with to keep the story alive. Some new bit of information. Yes. And that's the curious thing. Even though it was becoming clear to him that he was part of the story now, Ian didn't stop reporting on it. He'd been a reporter in the UK, but hadn't worked much since coming to Ireland. Now he was working every day and trying his best to get established. He was even going by Owen instead of Ian because maybe it would help if his byline sounded more Irish. Uh, I think there was a, uh, people hadn't heard my name that much. I was relatively unknown as a journalist and then all of a sudden they're seeing stories by Owen Bailey. Ian happened to live just a few miles from the biggest story in the country and he wanted to hold on to it. He talked about struggling to get information out of the guards to write about. But as a suspect, he was now on the inside of an investigation he'd been stuck on the outside of as a reporter. And he turned it all into front-page news. He reported that the guards were taking footwear from locals to compare with Prince at the scene. He reported that guards were investigating loose strands of hair found on the body of the victim and trying to match them against samples from locals. He didn't declare to his editors or readers how he was getting this information. He knew because during visit after visit, the guards took fingerprints, hair samples, several pairs of boots from Jules and him. Ian also became a fixer for national and international journalists coming to West Cork to cover the story. So I was fulfilling a number of roles. I wasn't necessarily writing stories for them, but I was channeling them to information. He wasn't notified about official press conferences that guards were regularly holding on the case. So he began holding his own. He'd invite journalists and detectives to meet in his sitting room to discuss news about the case. And twice the detectives came. Who knows what was on their minds? But the last time these detectives had been at the house, they'd been taking Ian's fingerprints. Now, Ian was taking them all through his theory of a French connection, that Sophie's husband Daniel was involved in her death. He told the guards that Daniel Toscan de Plantier had money troubles, that his recent films were box office disasters, he spoke darkly of connections with the Corsican Mafia. Money owed, a deal gone bad. 
Ian knew the guards had been to Paris, but the rumour was they'd hit red tape and hadn't got far beyond the hotel. The team of guards went over there. What did they do? They sat around, they drank some coffee, they ate some croissants, and they went to some nice restaurants. And that was basically the limit of their investigation. It seems that the guards began to develop a theory about this behaviour. They figured maybe Ian didn't really think the killer came from France. He just wanted other people to think that. That was an allegation, I think, that was suggested by certain elements within the guards that I was um, I was trying to uh, steer the t- attention of f- focus away from myself, uh, when in fact I, I had nothing to do with it and all I was doing was doing my job. As the investigation wore on, Ian didn't stop writing, but he did request that the papers remove his byline from several articles. He'd later explain in court that this was sometimes because he was one of several contributors. In another case, he said it was to avoid community repercussions over such a sensitive story. The result is, it's difficult to know exactly which information was coming from Ian. But we know Ian was spending a lot of time with a leading French journalist who was filling him in on what she knew about the French side of the investigation. One article he says he contributed to in the Daily Star on January 20th, 1997, Read in part, while sources in France seem overly keen to point the finger of blame at a local on the Mizan Peninsula, the belief among people in West Cork is that there's definitely a French connection. One detective in particular was very interested in what Ian was writing. Yeah, well, the first time I met Ian Bailey, there was some article and yeah, that he had written and I wasn't very clear about it. And I went down to the house and he was expecting me because I'd given him advance notice. Detective Dermot Dwyer retired about 15 years ago. People who knew him back then described him as a sort of Westcourt Columbo. Maybe it's because of his style, overcoat, shirt and tie, smoking a pipe. Or maybe it was his disarming manner. Detective Dwyer is originally from Kerry, one county over from Cork, where some people say the locals have a reputation for knowing more than they let on. When we first met him, by appointment in a Cork City hotel lobby, he fed us a Columbo-style line. Us carry men, he told us. We're not too smart. But we're not too stupid either. Ian had been on Detective Dwyer's radar for weeks. He'd been following everything at the guards' nightly conferences and been reading Ian's reporting. But he'd yet to meet him. A month into the investigation, Detective Dwyer called around to the prairie one Friday afternoon. Well, always, if you're investigating anything, it's very important to understand the other guy and what way he thinks and what's uh, important to him. And, you know, that's part of being any policeman doing his job. But he was the lead detective. Uh, I'd seen uh, Minion detectives previously. I think Culligan and Harrington actually delivered him and introduced him outside, and he came in and they went off. And he's invited me in and he sat down he was very pleasant and very uh, inviting and hospitable and sat down and I sat down and he made coffee for me very good coffee and his wife was obviously a good baker and he gave me a couple of mince pies I think they were they were beautiful as a matter of fact they talked about the case as if they were just a couple of guys shooting the breeze Dwyer says Ian told him it wasn't likely they were looking for a local person Ian thought he would have cracked under the pressure by now but Dwyer wasn't so sure He's quite a good talker and he's, he's kind of intelligent in ways. And we discussed the murder from A to Z and uh, I asked him his views in it and I had my own views in it and 
I had a very broad mind. I actually was taken in by him. I mean, I was suspicious of him, but I was also taken in by him. I thought he seemed like quite an affable sort of guy. I didn't realise he was actually a fucking psychopath. Uh, he, he kept on intimating that I, he suspected I knew more about this murder than I was acknowledging. Ian didn't know that three days before Dwyer's visit, the guards had made a break in the case, and it looked bad for Ian. They now knew that Marie Farrell was the mysterious Fiona, the woman who called under a fake name about a sighting on the night of the murder. The guards had put that together with Marie's other two sightings of a man in a long black coat over the weekend. And Marie told them that this man was Ian. That she saw him around three o'clock and that he looked out of his mind, looking up at the sky and shaking, and he didn't know where he was. Well, I mean, I told him, I said, that, that's ridiculous. The whole thing was a fiction. He says he'd been in bed the night of the murder. Dwyer denies it, but Ian says before leaving, the detective told him there was just one more thing. When he asked me, did I play poker? I mean, I don't play poker, but I know what poker's about, and poker is about bluff. Dwyer left his card, and first thing Monday morning, he got a phone call. I was obviously doing a lot of thinking about him too, and out of nowhere, he rings me in the morning around nine o'clock and asked me to meet him. I saw it was quite obvious I was in his mind too. They met and had coffee in a nearby village. And then two days later, Ian called him again. You know, I'm working on the, on the story. You know, I'm the lead journalist on it. We had a cup of coffee again and we were chatting. And he started talking about how busy he was. He had journalists to meet and he was meeting journalists from Paris and so on and so forth. He was on a high. It might seem quite bizarre at this particular point that uh, here I am, I'm reporting on the, the, the crime and I'm trying to come up with angles and, you know, and at the same time I'm being increasingly um, focused on as the, the culprit. I mean, it seems crazy, <laughs> it's crazy to me. Well, the whole thing is crazy actually when you look at it. Um, but are you, you seemed, I don't know what's going, what, are, you, are you in total denial at that point? How, how total denial of what? Because the detectives just told you that he's going to put you at Kilfredder Bridge and then you think he's going to sit down and give you things to write about, about the incident. Well, it might, it might sound a bit crazy and it might well have been, but it, I mean, that, it, it's, um, it happened. Were you hoping... I, I mean, I would have been hoping that I might have got some information from him. I don't know, I can't recall. Information about what they thought they had on you? Or? Well, information generally about the, the way the inquiry was going. But you knew it was going towards well, I, you, no? Yeah, yeah, I had a sort of sense that that, was, that might have been happening, but I didn't absolutely know. I mean, I, didn't, I mean, I can understand you saying it sounds a little bit crazy, and it probably was, and it may have been a bit... Un, I may well have been ill-advised by myself to do that, but it's something that I did. Word got out in West Cork that Ian was a suspect. A few days after meeting Detective Dwyer, Ian gave a neighbour, 14-year-old Malachi Reed, a lift home from Skull. In the car, he asked Ian how everything was going, just general chit-chat. He said Ian told him, everything was fine until I went up there with a rock and bashed her fucking brains in. Ian says he didn't quite say it that way and that whatever he said he meant it sarcastically. But it wasn't the right crowd for dark humour. The boy was freaked out and told the guards, who also took it at face value. The detail about the rock jumped out at the guards. Was Ian betraying an inside knowledge of the crime? 
it was something they were already considering. His first reports in the Sunday Tribune newspaper days after the murder featured rich detail, the path Sophie had been pursued across the property, the injuries to the back of her head. Ian said he was just picking up on what had already been widely circulated in West Cork or in other articles. Around this time, Ian got a call from a furious editor at the Sunday Tribune. The paper had heard that Ian might be a suspect and called to confront him. Again, Ian reached for sarcasm. I, I, I cracked some dark humour joke, which um, I regret, that, uh, oh yes, I, I did this because I needed a story. The editor would later say in court that Ian had told her, it was me, I did it, I killed her, I did it to resurrect my career. She said she was flabbergasted, she didn't know what to think. The Tribune had a situation and had to do something. That's where photojournalist Billy McGill came in. Billy hadn't met Ian, but before the murder, they'd been in contact about working together on stories. Billy lived nearby and he knew the terrain. He was speaking to an editor at the Tribune one day, and she told him how worried they were about Ian's coverage of the murder. She said he's on every few hours with updates on this uh, murder. And we're all getting a little paranoid here about it. He seemed to be becoming quite obsessed. Billy had a plan get Ian to show him around to some of the key places in the murder case, and this would allow him some time to suss Ian out. They met in a pub in Skull. As soon as he walked in, Billy says he spotted two plainclothes detectives eyeing Ian up from the other side of the bar. Billy needed to spend some time alone with Ian, so he suggested they take his car. Just to explain here, Billy's the type of guy who knows how to clock a plainclothes detective. He's also the type of guy who owns three cars and drives all of them fast. Yeah. I have what's called a D license. Very few of them in this country. I can drive. Billy says they quickly lost the detectives and settled into an afternoon tour of West Cork. They visited a guy who early on was considered a suspect, and they drove to the water near Sophie's house where teams had been searching for evidence. And over the day, Billy wondered about Ian. He figured if Ian knew he was being looked at as a possible suspect... He should be at home, keeping his head down, not out with a fellow journalist touring the investigation hotspots. I wasn't there to advise him to tell him that he was getting too close to the flame or anything else. But as the afternoon unwound, I would come to the conclusion, these guys are going to have a lot of pressure in getting somebody quickly. And, mate, you shouldn't be where you're at at this point in time. Because the whole nation is watching this. I genuinely felt that he had to be in the centre of this, that he liked it, he liked the attention. When you play with fire, you've got to be a good juggler. Towards the end of the day, Ian even directed Billy out to Sophie's house. We had now arrived at what we will say the scene where the body had been found. Just remember something that was interesting now. Billy told us when they got to the gate, Ian insisted they get out the car and leave all the camera equipment behind. He made as if to pat Billy down and asked if he was wired up with a recording device. Ian had them move away from the car down to the gate. Then, Billy says, Ian confronted him about what exactly his intentions were that day. When there's only two people, and when you stare into the darkness of each other's eyes, and when he asks you the question, do you think I killed her? You count to ten. 
you come to 10 again. You give me this answer. From what I have read, from what I have seen, I think you did murder her. Billy didn't know what the guards had on Ian. He had no inside knowledge, but he was willing to believe the worst of him because he found his behavior so strange. So there, standing on the spot where Sophie's body was found, Billy told Ian that yes, at that moment, he thought Ian did murder her. Four days later, Monday, February the 10th, 1997, Ian was arrested for murder. The small country roadway beside where Owen Bailey lives was blocked with traffic today as the media gathered to hear his story. Mr. Bailey was questioned in Bandangarda station in connection with the murder of Madame Sophie Tuscan Duplantier. Well, for, for 12 hours, I was subjected to a barrage of questioning from different officers, between 10 to a dozen officers. There was one common theme that went on throughout this, that they knew that I was the killer. They were convinced. Did you know Sophie Tuscan Duplantier? I didn't know her in as much that I had never met her, but I had seen her once and she was pointed out to me. But you're saying to me here, you didn't kill Sophie de Plantier, nor did you have any part in that. I am saying to you that I didn't kill her, I had no knowledge of the killing, and I'm an innocent man. West Cork is an Audible original production. Written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trajano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olive. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. This is Audible. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.